five years ago this weekend, we planted Triumph of Grace Ministries. And I preached a message called Perfect Rest. And we have been resting ever since. So today I want to minister for a little while through a message I'm calling Victorious Grace. You see, the truth of the matter is, I don't know as though you can know what perfect rest is in the absence or without the revelation of His victorious grace. I think our rest is very unstable without grace. I think our rest is very intermittent without grace. It's here one moment and then it's there another. And I understand that. The thread that I want to weave through the message today is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And this is what the Apostle Peter said as he opened up that second book of his. He said, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. I love what he says here because he opens that book like the Apostle Paul by speaking grace and peace over us. But I love what he says. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. He said, through the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus. And as you think about this, it's not just the knowledge, because you can read till the cows come home and know facts and still not walk in the abundance of God. Many people do that. But I think the key is found in what he's saying right after that. He's saying his divine power has given us everything we need. Now that's a key phrase. So often we are chasing things because we don't know and it has not been established in our hearts that we have everything we need. In other words, he gave us everything we need for life and godliness, as one version says. He gave us everything at once. So everything is already on the inside of us. We just need to allow that to manifest, allow that to be pulled out of our spirit man and worked into our soul man. But I believe it comes when you realize that there's an abundance of grace. In other words, there's grace for every situation. There's peace for every situation. I realize conflict is everywhere you turn. And I was talking with a friend and I said, you know what, Jesus's ministry was a ministry of conflict. Everywhere he went, he experienced conflict. It was no easy road for him to walk down. There was conflict. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to do away with him. And so I said to a couple of different people this week that peace is not the absence of conflict. We need to understand that. It's so important that God gives us peace and he gives us grace even in the midst of conflict. In fact, that's how you'll know that it's really working is when you face conflict, that grace is what is your response. Peace is your response. I'm not saying that we're happy about everything we have to deal with and that we're delighted about it and it's no big deal. 
It is a big deal in a lot of these situations. But we can still have peace. The name of the message, once again, Victorious Grace. The male name Victor and the female name Victoria, and I like both of those names, they're powerful names, come out of this word victorious. Can you hear their names? Victorious. Victorious. They come out of this word victorious. These names are of Latin origin, but listen to what they mean. Both the male name and the female name mean exactly the same thing. They mean conqueror. So every time you see the name of this church in print or you hear it and you hear triumphant grace, we are in essence declaring victorious, conquering grace. In fact, the Father doesn't have any other kind of grace than victorious, conquering grace. There's a well-known and a well-liked Bible verse that reminds us that we have this conquering grace at work in our lives. It reminds us, it puts it front and center. And I love this verse. It's found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. It says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you like that verse? I like that verse. I'm going to tell you two things that I really like about that verse right there. And I'll explain them in just a second. First of all, I love the revelation that's found in that verse. And number two, I love the location of that verse. The revelation that's found in this verse right here is notice that he says, no, in all these things. Now, all doesn't mean many and all doesn't mean most. It will encompass those, but it means more. All means all. And he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. When he says all, he's literally saying there are no exceptions. That's so important as believers for us to understand this because we always feel like, yeah, but. See, that's an exception. Yeah, but. You don't know. No, that's an exception. All means there are no exceptions. We are more than conquerors in every situation. Now, that does not feel true sometimes. That does not look true. That does not sound true. But the word is true, right? And he says, in all things. So the all speaks of no exceptions. But not only are there no exceptions, there's no limitations. Look at those words. He says, we're more than conquerors. I always used to go, why would you say it that way? Because if you conquer something, you win something, right? So why would you have to say you're more? It'd be like saying... Did he win the race? Oh, he more than won the race. You'd be like, what do you mean by that? In other words, there's no limitation. God is exceedingly, abundantly above. He doesn't just squeak us by. We don't win by fragments. We have this exceeding, abundant, above God who says you are more than a conqueror. It's a baby step to start thinking like a winner. It's a baby step to start thinking like a conqueror. But when you go from thinking like a conqueror to thinking more like a more than a conqueror, I want to tell you something, you have graduated. The all speaks of no exceptions. The more than conqueror speaks of no limitations. But look at those next two words. Look who it's through. It's through him. 
And that speaks of no contribution. You see, because your contribution to become more than a conqueror can get skewed. It can get all messed up. We are not more than conquerors based upon what we have done. Now we get to work with the Lord. What am I doing this morning? I'm working with him. It's him speaking through me. That's all. There are no exceptions. There are no limitations in this verse. And there is no contribution. It is through him. Now look at his heart. Look at his motivation here. Why did he do this? Is it pretty plain? <laughs> because he loved us. You see, sometimes when people do things for you, you kind of get suspicious. You're like, why are you doing that for me? You ever had that happen? I mean, if someone walked up to you and handed you a thousand dollar check or something like that, you'd be like, okay, what's the catch here? Why are you doing this? It tells you why he did it right there. Because he loved us. Well, that's good enough for me. I don't know if it's good enough for you or not. So I love the revelation that my heart began to sing to us. I began to meditate upon that verse. But not only do I love the revelation of that verse, I love the location of that verse. Because that verse is sandwiched right in the middle of the Scripture's that declare the inseparable love of God. That we cannot be separated from God. You say, what do you mean sandwiched right in the middle? Well, in verse 35, he begins to talk about what or what cannot separate us from the love of God. And he ends it in verse 39. So 35 and 36 talk about the things that cannot separate us from the love of God. 38 and 39 talk about more things that cannot separate us from the love of God. And right sandwiched right in the middle of that, is this scripture right here. No, in all of these things. It was almost like he gave us a short list of seven things and he said, you don't believe that, do you? <laughs> Let me tell you something. No, in all these things, you're more than conquerors through him who loved you. Now, let me tell you 10 more things that will not separate you from my love. I love those scriptures. They're some of my favorites. So I love the revelation and the location of that scripture. Please make note that it's through Christ's love that we are made more than conquerors. Our conquering, victorious, and triumphant hearts spring to life in the revelation of His inseparable love for us. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. If that doesn't do it, nothing will. If your heart doesn't rejoice and come alive based upon the truth, of this kind of love, this inseparable love, this all-inclusive love. It's an uncommon thing to meet a person who doesn't want to walk in victory. I have not met one yet that doesn't want or at least desire to walk in victory. Many people just don't know how to get there. The inverse of victor is loser. The opposite of victory is defeat. And I want you to know something this morning that Jesus was not a loser at the cross. He did not get defeated on the cross. Jesus won at the cross and he won for you and he won for me. He was and is and forever will be our victorious king. That's so true. We see that truth in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. The Bible says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Look at that word, triumphing, meaning becoming victorious over them. How did he do it? He did it by the cross. 
It makes my heart smile when I look at this. He made a public spectacle of them. In other words, Jesus embarrassed the enemy of our soul and he rendered Satan utterly defeated. It is very important to know that. He has been rendered defeated. Don't give him any ground. Don't give him any place. Don't give him any credit. He is a defeated foe. He has been utterly defeated at the cross. Through the shed blood of Christ, new creations are not only seated with him, but we are sealed with him in the victorious position as children of God. Our position as children of God is far greater than that of a servant. Our position as sons and daughters far greater than that of a servant. As I was meditating on that thought this week, I sat down in the break room at work and I just cracked open my Bible and my Bible opened up and my eyes immediately fell on the caption that was above Hebrews chapter 3 and right there my eyes immediately fell on the words, Jesus greater than Moses. <laughs> Moses' victory is not our victory. Jesus' victory is our victory. Jesus' grace has become our victorious grace. Now let me ask the question, where and when did this transfer of wealth take place? Well, friends, it was at the cross. It was at the cross where it began and it culminated through a risen Savior in an empty tomb. That's where it began on the cross and it culminated. It climaxed, if you will, with a risen Savior that we even sang about in a couple of the songs this morning. Here's what I felt the Lord say to me. The transfer of Jesus' innocence and righteousness into our bankrupt hearts did not come without great cost. It's very important to be mindful of that. It came with great cost. The Bible communicates a graphic image of the crucified Christ. He is the one that was disfigured beyond that of any human being and the one whose form was marred beyond any human likeness. The prophet Isaiah prophesied what I call the explicit and unvarnished, the naked account, if you will, that epitomized the delicacy of Jesus' humanity draped around the strength of his eternity. We see that truth in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Isaiah said, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Who are they talking about? He's talking about Christ. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Now, what's important to understand is that when a believer fails in thought, word, or deed, apart from the new covenant reality of the finished work of the cross, that failure will take them to Heartbreak Hotel. What did I just say? I said, when we fail in thought, word, or deed, if we don't have the revelation that Jesus paid for all my sins, past, present, and future, then you will feel like you have to pay for your mistake. And where does it take you? it takes you to Heartbreak Hotel. We begin our sojourn there. We begin our temporary stay there. And when we feel like we've shed enough tears, when we've prayed enough prayers, we've done enough things, then it feels like the jailer comes along and lets us out. 
but it's not the reality. Believers concoct dreadful and distorted images of themselves as the cuckoo clock of condemnation begins to talk to them on the hour. In other words, you can't seem to shake it. And every hour or so, that cuckoo clock of condemnation puts its head out and starts talking to you. As a result, what happens is like Adam, they run and hide from God, the person they should run to. They tie a fig leaf apron around them. It represents self-righteousness that I have to pay for what I've done. And then what happens is they have a tendency to try to fix themselves with performance and promise. Now, if you don't know what I mean there, what I'm saying is this. When believers fail many times, what they do is they say, well, I've got to do better. I've got to go to church more frequently. I've got to read my Bible more. And I believe in all these things. I think they're helpful for you, but not for identity. None of those things take away sin. And then they start making promises. Lord, I'll never do that again. You've made that promise before? It's true. Have we all done that before? Lord, I'll never say that again. Lord, I'll never act like that again. So we have this tendency when we fail to either make promises or come under this performance mentality. Like Martha, they run to the kitchen rather than Mary to the feet of Jesus to rest. They tend to see themselves as disfigured and marred, frayed and flawed, rather than victorious, conquering, triumphant sons and daughters of God. And they discard the breathtaking truth that they are actually just like Jesus. You and I are just like Jesus. In what way? Fragile humanity wrapped around eternal strength. We're exactly like him. The Bible says, as he is, so are we in this world, not just in heaven someday. Fragile humanity wrapped around eternal strength. It's important to remind ourselves in times like these that failure is always an event, not a person. And you know what? Those words came back to me. You know that dog that Valerie was talking about, our dog? Well, that dog decided after the first day we had it to try to mark our home inside our home. When I came out uh, of one of the rooms, I noticed a spot on the floor. I'm like, I don't remember that spot being there. I laid my hand down in Oh, yeah, that's a wet spot. And the bad thing about it was, it was my coat that was hanging on the chair that that dog decided to mark. Because I started looking at my coat. I'm like, oh, no, that's my coat. My point is, I had to go, ooh, Failure's an event, not a dog. <laughs> he's a really good dog. He's a real sweet dog, real precious dog. And he's growing on me, you know. Looks more like a sheep than he does a dog, but he does. He looks like Chris the sheep. But anyway, those words came back to me that failure is an event, not a person, not a dog. After many years of riotous living, the prodigal son's image of himself became disfigured and marred. He was fatigued, no doubt about it, with depression. He was fatigued with emotional numbness. And the prodigal had forgotten his true identity as that of a victorious son. 
He had gotten so far away from his father that he had really forgotten how good it was at home. But I love this because in spite of his own self-image, in spite of the way he saw himself upon his return home, his father met him with extravagant grace that showed up in the form of hugs and kisses and love and gifts and expressions and acceptance. His father's message to his son was simply this. Son, failure is an event, never a person. His son was lavished, as I always say this way, with the robe, the ring, the Reeboks, and the roast. Isn't that beautiful? And they all speak of grace. They all speak of sonship. These are the gifts that he gave his son to remind him, son, failure is an event, never a person. No matter how many times you do this, his father's immediate business was to put a tourniquet around his son's bleeding heart by drawing his son's attention to the wonderful truth. He wanted his son to see his eternal strength rather than his fragile humanity. You see, on the way home, that's all that son could see is fragile humanity. Couldn't see beyond that. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know what? Only the unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted, uneverything favor of God can do something like that, can show up at a time like that. Only the victorious grace of God can purge the stench from the pig pen of our minds while simultaneously muzzling the cuckoo clock of condemnation. Only the grace of God can do that. Only His grace. I love this. This is a word picture the Lord put in my heart some time ago. Did you know that you can take a can of Ajax and a Brillo pad and you can scrub a pig until it's raw and still not change the mindset of that pig? Why? Because he's a pig. He is programmed to think like a pig. It's his nature. You can't change him. You could take that pig and you can mist him with the finest perfume money can buy. But the moment you turn that pig loose, guess what he's going to do? He's going to return to the mud. You see that truth in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He said, a scrubbed up pig heads for the mud. Why? Again, because it's his nature. So that's one thing I love about the gospel. I love about Christianity. I love about being son is I don't have the same nature. My nature has been changed. Your nature has been changed. We have the nature of Jesus Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. <laughs> What's new? All things. Remember when he gave all things to us? Remember that? All things are become new. One of the most classic Bible scriptures is, I can do yeah, come on. I can do all things through Christ. Why don't we believe that? I can do all things through Christ. 
Why? Because He strengthens me. That same strength that we were talking about earlier. If a new creation in Christ will allow his or her disfigured or marred image to be exchanged with hugs and kisses and acceptance from the Father, then their true identity will emerge and will undergird them with Jesus' victorious grace. So plain and simple, folks. We used to sing this song years ago called Trading My Sorrows. Trading My Sorrows. I guess it's okay because if you got sorrow, you can trade it away for His joy. But guess what? We have His nature. And in His nature is joy unspeakable and full of glory. In His nature is love. In His nature is grace. In His nature is peace. In His nature is all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Where sin abounds, triumphant, conquering, and victorious grace, I love this, superabounds. Because that is the Greek word, it means to superabound. When it talks about grace being greater than our sin, it's talking about a grace that superabounds. Victorious grace reveals the heart and the face of Christ, even in the midst of hopelessness. Victorious grace decimates guilt and fear and shame and condemnation. It obliterates it. If you keep staring at the guilt, you keep staring at the shame, the fear, the condemnation, it will overwhelm you. But when you stare at His grace, it is decimated by that grace. It is the same grace that rewrites our constitution from sinner to saint. Please, don't ever refer to yourself as a sinner. Just because you sin doesn't make you a sinner. Like I said in the previous message, putting a dog collar around your neck doesn't make you a dog. You're not a sinner because you sin. You are a son. You're a son. Our Father God does not dispense any other form of grace than triumphant, conquering, ever-increasing, superbounding, and victorious grace. The grace that saved you is the same grace that keeps you and it will forever be sufficient from our Jesus. He dealt with our past sins, our present, and our future. We have been cleansed from spiritual leprosy by Jesus' victorious grace and our response is the thankful cry found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57. I love this. He says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. In other words, without the knowledge of the law, you would know you were sinning. So there'd be no power. There'd be no awareness of the sin. The law brought the awareness of it. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he do that? By giving us his victorious grace in place of the law. Now, for a long time, I've stared at this scripture and I thought, for sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. I know these are all simple words, but it's kind of a tongue twister and it's kind of a brain teaser what are you talking about here? 
In other words, you could say it like this, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its poison. It's kind of like a scorpion. I don't know what it feels like to be stung by a scorpion, but I'm sure it smarts. And sin is like that scorpion. When we sin, there is a sting to it. But imagine all the poison is taken out of the scorpion so that when we're stung, we don't necessarily die from the poison of that because it's been removed. But yet there is still a consequence. It hurts. But it's only when we bring in and focus on the law to try to keep us straight and narrow, then what we do is we add back in the poison because the law, the Bible says, is the ministry of condemnation and it is the ministry of death. We don't need the law to remind us if we've done something wrong or if something's unhealthy or won't benefit us. We have the Holy Spirit. He is the one who convinces us to make the right choices. About a year and a half ago, I had ministered a message by the very name of our church, Triumphant Grace. That was the name of the message. And there were some things in there that the Holy Spirit brought back to my attention for even this message, Victorious Grace. And I want to cover some of those. One of them is healing the lepers. I love that. Because there's so much that we can see of our own walk in there. There's so much we can learn about our own relationship with the Lord. On the road to Jerusalem, Jesus entered an unnamed village. And there he was accosted by ten desperate lepers. Desperate. Have you ever been so desperate in your walk with the Lord, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain or anguish of some sort, that you have been so desperate that you colored outside of every line? and reach beyond every lacy edge. I have. And that's what was going on with these men. Times when you pushed every boundary just in an effort to bring rest to your soul. And we see examples of that threaded throughout the Bible. We see many examples of desperate individuals. They skirted the edge of their prescribed paradigms. And so it was with these 10 lepers. They were supposed to cry, unclean, unclean. Yet they came near to Jesus. They were supposed to stay at a distance, yet they came near. And how about the woman with the issue of blood who pressed through the crowd with destiny-altering face so that she could just touch the hem of his garment and be made whole? And then, of course, there's Jacob who wrestled with the pre-incarnate Christ and he held fast and he wouldn't let go until he received the blessing. When you think about the lepers and these other two individuals and you say, what was the common denominator? I'll tell you what the common denominator was. They all came near to Christ. See, religion will keep daddy at a distance. Grace brings him up close and personal. Grace reaches out there and says, Daddy, I don't have to make a bunch of promises. Daddy, I don't have to go and perform. I know I just blew it in what I was thinking or the way I treated somebody. But Daddy, I can still come near to you. Isn't that beautiful? It's true. That's what he wants. 
Jesus is the one who told the story about the prodigal son. If somebody else told it, maybe they got the facts a little wrong. But Jesus is the one who initiated this story. What was he trying to get at? He was trying to get at, let me show you a picture of my daddy. Let me show you what my father is like. Let me show you what my father will do for you. When? When you've blown it. When you've actually said to your own father, I wish you were dead. Because that's exactly what the prodigal son said when he said, give me my inheritance. He was saying, daddy, I wish you were dead. But what did the father do? The father said, no problem, son. There you go. And he squandered it, living a, a careless life. He fell so low, he found himself in a pig pen. Jews didn't touch pig. That was a real pig pen of his own making. But he came to his senses in that pig pen, and he began to say, man, my father is good. My father is a good man. He began to dream once again, but he didn't dream big enough. See, today, we have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. So we can do all things through Christ. We have everything that pertains to life. All things that pertain to life and godliness living on the inside of us. There's a big difference between the prodigal and ourselves. But I really believe even under an old covenant parable, Jesus was injecting a new covenant reality to say, this is really the heart of my father right here. That he won't even ask you, son, what'd you do while you were gone? Isn't that beautiful? You cannot be free if you keep Papa at a distance. He must be up close and personal. Our Father does not shun us when we fail. He runs to us with hugs and kisses and gifts and says, Son, you want to dance? Oh, really? That's a hand you want to take? You say, Yeah, Papa, I want to dance. I was leaving a company one time and this was the career I pursued all my life. When I told my boss I was leaving and gave my notice, he said, I'll make sure that you can own this company. Just stay. I said, I've already made my decision. This is a God decision. Any other time in life, I would have said, oh, I want that. I want that more than anything. And from across the room, I hung my head like this. And after quite a bit of awkward silence, I looked up at him with kind of tears in my eyes. And he said, you look like a man that could use a hug. I said, I sure could. And that old Papa Bear walked over to me and he put his arm around me and hugged me and just identified with the way I was feeling. And that meant more to me than anything I can tell you that had happened any time in my life up to that point in time. That just meant so much to me that he would identify with my emotional anguish that I was feeling. That's what Papa does. That's what he specializes in. Putting arms around us in the midst of sometimes failure, but not always failure, in the midst of anguish and, and tough decisions. And he does it better than anybody I know. The 10 lepers that Jesus encountered were men that had been stung with the toxicity of isolation and the impending sentence of death. Now, I want you to think about something. These lepers were without cure for the most part, and they were without hope. 
Leprosy destroyed the skin, then the nerves, then the flesh, then the bones, and then ultimately it would take your life. It would eat you alive. It was a horrific death, and the stench of rotting flesh was more repulsive than the pig pen the prodigal walked out of. It was awful. Leprosy devoured flesh as it sequestered the afflicted from the ones they loved. It isolated them. Let me ask you the question, was leprosy just a disease that came upon sinners as some sort of punishment? This is your form of punishment because you've been bad. No. Leprosy was no respecter of persons any more than a leech is a respecter of persons. You invade its waters. It doesn't care what blood type you've got. If you're a man, woman, it doesn't care if you're a prince or a pauper. You'll find it attached to your feet. And it was with leprosy. If you got near it, when somebody had it, you got it. It was just very contagious. And it was a debilitating disease. And as I thought about that, and I wrote in the book I'm writing, this is the way the Holy Spirit painted the picture for me. He said, the infamous Alcatraz Island would have looked like a luxury resort in comparison to a leper colony. Leprosy was the outward manifestation of what the inside of a man looks like who dies apart from Christ, rotten, without hope, and sequestered for an eternity in that condition. On a spiritual level, leprosy was merely a type and shadow of sin. So when we look back now, you couldn't see it then, but as we look back now, we can see that leprosy was a type and shadow of sin. The sin that intermittently sequestered people from God, man from God, while under the old covenant. It's very important to understand that. Let's take a look at this truth from the pen of the prophet Isaiah. He says this in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. Now don't let this scripture take you to Heartbreak Hotel, okay? It's not in our covenant. Isaiah said, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, this scripture has been used, abused, and never refused by well-meaning ministers to draw both saint and sinner to a place of repentance. But as intimidating as this scripture may come across, don't let it take you to the pig pen. Don't let it take you to Alcatraz. And don't let it take you to Heartbreak Hotel. This scripture is not from our covenant, and it's never been applicable to a new creation in Christ. New creations, hear these words, cannot be separated from Christ. We have an everlasting covenant that comes through Jesus' victorious grace. Our covenant is from His victorious grace. Our covenant has been established and built upon better promises through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I want you to see those scriptures now, the ones I referred to earlier, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. The author, Paul, writes these words. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? <laughs> Think about that question. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? He says, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. 
we are being slaughtered like sheep. Let me stop here for just a second. Now, he didn't say these things weren't going to show up in your life. Even Jesus said in this world, you're going to have trouble. But when we have trouble, understand, it is not the barometer. It is not the metric with whether or not God loves us. When we face calamity, it has no bearing on whether or not he loves us. So what he's saying here, he's asking the question, can anything separate us from the love of God? Oh, by the way, you're going to go through trouble. You're going to go through calamity. You're going to be hungry at times. You're going to be destitute at times. You're going to be in danger. You're going to be persecuted at times. And he said, just in case I didn't cover everything, there's going to come a point in time when you're going to have a death threat put on you. You're going to face death, whether it's natural causes or some other reason. He said, you're going to face that. And then I want you to go back to the first question I asked you, can anything separate you from Christ's love? And then he takes that scripture that I started with and he injects it right here. He said, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what is the answer? The answer is no. Who did the Apostle Paul hear from to write this? He heard from Jesus himself. So Jesus said these words. He whispered them into Paul's heart. And he said, Paul, I want this to be in the book of Romans. I want you to write this to the Romans for the whole world to see. Can anything separate them from my love? Can anything separate them from my love? He said, let me give you seven things that you're going to face. When we go through issues of life, calamity, dangers, persecution, we're like, am I doing this right, Lord? Because this shouldn't be happening like this. And then he says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And then he lists 10 more things. He says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. I love that. Neither our fears today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I want you to take that truth and I want you to set it aside for just a second. And then I want you to reach back into Isaiah and grab that proclamation that said that our sins have separated us from God, that he will not hear us. And I want you to lay them side by side. And when I think about that old prophecy, one of the first things that comes to my mind is that is an obsolete currency. That was the currency at the time. Everything was set up differently, but that has become obsolete. It is a muzzled cuckoo clock. The potential of separation from God, listen to me carefully, is not echoed within the new covenant. You do not hear them ever say that. It's not echoed within the covenant of victorious grace for the believer. In fact, let me tell you what is, just the opposite. The opposite is transmitted. We find that truth in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Here's what the writer said. He said, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. 
The same iniquities, the same unrighteousness, the same filth that Isaiah talked about and said that's going to separate you from God so that he won't hear you. So the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience that under the new covenant of grace, God no longer remembers our sins. He no longer remembers our iniquities and our unrighteousness. God has removed the leech of Moses' law from our feet, and he has rendered the old covenant obsolete. Now, why do I keep talking about this? Because there are so many millions of people out there that do not believe it. It's almost like they have never heard these scriptures. They just don't believe this. Let's look at the very next verse, verse 13. He said, by calling this covenant new, look at those words, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And it did disappear with that generation. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. It's no longer in operation. Only in our minds. Let me ask you the question, what brought about this prodigious change? This is a big change. What did it? I'll tell you. Let's stay in context and let's back up just a few verses. We're in verse 13. Let's back up in the same chapter to verses 6 and 7. He says this, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. I love the Old Testament. I have a very fond relationship with the Old Testament, but I understand my covenant when I go back there and read. You know, it's like reading somebody's mail. You read somebody's mail and you see something that happened to them. Well, it didn't happen to me. I'm reading somebody else's mail when I read back there and I read under the Old Covenant. The difference between the message of the prophet Isaiah and the writer of Hebrews, remember Isaiah 59.2 and then Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Why would those two messages be so different? What is the difference between those? I'll tell you what it is. Jesus made flesh. That's the difference. Jesus made flesh. He was the shadow in the Old Covenant, but He manifested as our substance within the New Covenant. The shadow was temporal. Jesus is eternal. Now, let me share some things with you just so that you can understand you don't have to be afraid of the shadows and how worthless the shadows are when you have the true substance. I always like to say it like this. The shadow of a dog can't bite you. The shadow of an automobile can't transport you. It's just a shadow. You take a plastic banana and hold it up like that and you cast a shadow on the wall, I guarantee there ain't a person in the world can tell you by that shadow if that banana is real or plastic. But we have the real substance. His name is Jesus Christ. Shadows cannot sustain a man. It takes substance. You can eat hamburger shadows all day long and make all the noises you want. I guarantee you, at the end of the day, you're going to be hungry. The shadow of a gun cannot harm us. I love that one too. The shadow of the old covenant was generated from the true light that was coming into the world. See, one thing I know about shadows is you can't have one without light 
All you'd have is darkness. And you can't have a shadow without substance. Something has to cast the shadow. You can't have a shadow without light and without substance. Jesus is both our light and Jesus is our substance. He himself said, I am the light of the world. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, it says this. It says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Quit chasing shadows. Imagine when the prodigal showed up and it was sunny that day, no doubt. And the prodigal saw his father's shadow on the ground. Did you know the shadow can't hug you? And you can't hug it. We need substance. And that substance is Christ. That substance is our Father. The law of Moses mandated that the leper warn approaching people. Therefore, a leper's cry, I mean incessant cry, was unclean. Unclean! It was like that was the only word they were allowed to speak. Unclean! Unclean! And I felt the Holy Spirit say this to me some time ago. Unfortunately, believers are still parroting the cry of the leper, especially when they blow it in thought, word, or deed. Their cry is, unclean! Or at least their thoughts are, I'm unclean! I'm unclean! Unscriptural language. Obsolete ideologies. That's all it is. But thanks to Jesus' victorious grace, Believers are no longer left in a hopeless and unsanitary condition. Therefore, listen to me, our cry is not unclean, unclean. Our cry is, but thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God! Who would have ever thought about thanking God when you've blown it? You don't thank God that you've blown it, but you thank God in the midst of that, that he runs to you with hugs and kisses and love and acceptance. He's not bringing shadows to us. He's bringing substance, and that substance is Christ. It makes me excited. It does. So the revelation of God's unconditional love and victorious grace removes the grave clothes of condemnation the stench of rotting flesh, the fallacy of separation, and the sentence of death. As a young boy, my siblings and I waded barefoot one Sunday afternoon through a leech-infested creek. And when we exited the waters, to our surprise, we had visitors. Would you like to know who those visitors were? <laughs> well, they weren't the Hamburglar and Ronald McDonald. They were leeches, my friends. And it's amazing how quickly they can attach themselves to you. I mean, within seconds, it's like they've been there for months. They're just all rooted and dug in. I don't know what kind of stuff they got on the bottom of them. So after we persuasively removed the leeches, in other words, we just reached down and yanked them off. When, after we did that, our feet looked anything but beautiful. They were a bloody mess. My point is, they didn't change our inward man. Oh, it changed our outward appearance. We were bleeding all over the place, but it didn't change who we were. 
and nothing we walk through in life changes who we are in Christ. We're going to get cut once in a while. We're going to get cut once in a while. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face calamity. We're going to be in hunger at times. We're going to hunger, not maybe for food, but we're going to hunger in some way, some area. But don't ever believe that that's the barometer of how much daddy loves you. I'm reminded the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, got thrown in the fire by the enemy. Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. Could God have prevented that? Yes, of course he could have. But I'll tell you what, they learned probably the greatest lesson they ever learned in their lives by being in that furnace. And Daniel probably learned one of the greatest lessons he ever learned in his life by being in that lion's den. Listen, I wouldn't sign up for any calamity. I wouldn't sign up for any hunger. I wouldn't sign up for any persecution. But if it happens, I'm telling you, stay faithful in your resolve with Papa to work this out. Because he's already deposited inside of us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Maybe in the midst of that, he's just going to have you pray for that person. Unlike the leper, we no longer have to stand at a distance and cry unclean, unclean. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near. You're as close as you're ever going to get. We have been brought near to the Father, and we are as clean as Jesus. You believe that? I believe that. If you don't believe it, I'll believe it for you. I'm telling you, I am as clean as Christ. Why? Because I'm one with Christ. You can't tell where Mark starts and Jesus ends and Jesus ends and Mark starts. We're one. We are just as clean as Christ. Even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of disappointment, even in the midst of calamity, we're just as clean as he is. What changed? What happened? You ever ask that question? You see something, you go... What just happened? I've actually said that to the Father at times where he showed up and he's done something so miraculous and I've walked away from him and I went, Daddy, what just happened? What was that? I mean, I knew what it was, but I'm like, what did that? What happened? What changed? I'll tell you what changed. Listen to me. Jesus took away the parasite known as sin and he infused our hearts with righteousness. He took it away. Wasn't that John the Baptist's message when he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't cover it. Doesn't bury it. He takes away. He's already been buried. He's already been covered. He's resurrected. And he's taken it away for us. He removed the poison from the scorpion and we bear the leech of sin no more. We have been justified. That means declared righteous. I love that. Justified by Jesus' blood through faith in the finished work of the cross. The result is peace with God. God has peace with humanity. God has peace with his children again. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. Everything is through Christ. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always, everything keeps pointing to Christ. The result is peace with God. God's love has been poured out into our hearts, the Bible says, 
by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. When did he pour it out? He poured it out when we were yet sinners. And the Holy Spirit seals us into the day of redemption. Now, the leper of the Old Testament was mandated by ceremonial law to continuously transmit the message of unclean. Now, the one thing I want to say about this is we all have ticks, little things that we do, you know, <laughs> whether it's a physical tick or it's, it's just some little thing we do, something we say. But you have to understand that the power of life and death is in the tongue. And you got to catch what you say sometimes because sometimes it's so subtle and you've been saying it for so long that you keep speaking death over you when you should be speaking life. And that's what the lepers were doing. They were continually transmitting the message of unclean. So what was it doing? It was building this stronghold in their heart. They couldn't see themselves any other way. It wasn't until Jesus came along. Lepers were to bring their shame front and center so as to repel other human beings from getting close to them. Lepers loathed the loneliness of isolation but had no power to change their condition. Do you, you get that? They hated life. They hated, they loathed it. They were disgusted and appalled by it. But they had no ability to change it. No ability to change their condition. But Jesus, I like that, but Jesus came along and demonstrated that his victorious grace was greater than Moses and superior to their infectious disease. In the same manner, Jesus demonstrated through his triumphant victory at the cross that his victorious grace was greater than our sin. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. As a result of Old Covenant program and teaching, believers are still impersonating the cry of the leper. When they miss the mark by sinning, so often, nothing else in your head, you're hearing the words unclean, unclean. It's almost as though they believe that their perfect performance is what keeps them clean. Oh, no, friends. Our performance has never kept us clean. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ that keeps us clean. And when I see that and I hear that all the time, I always think, this shouldn't be so. This is not the way it's designed to be, Daddy. Why is it like this? I want you to remember, it was Jesus' sinless life and Jesus' finished work on the cross that keeps believers clean. He made us clean and he keeps us clean. We add no detergent to his precious blood. It is not Jesus plus Mr. Clean. It is Christ alone. It is not Jesus plus Ajax and a Brillo pad. It is Christ alone. It is not Jesus plus scrubbing bubbles. It is Christ alone. See, you can go to the store, you can get all these detergents, all these things you want to get. And you can try to add this to his finished work. I think it's just an insult to ourselves and everybody else and certainly to him. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn. Did you hear that? I want to distinguish. I want your clothes to be ripped as a, like a sign of mourning. You know how they would rip their clothes when they were mourning and sit in sackcloth and, and ashes? He says, as for the leper who has infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, 
unclean. Now see, this is why the lepers did this, because this was commanded by Moses. He shall cry, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they shall be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Why would lepers be quarantined? Well, it's very simple, so they wouldn't infect others, right? The leper was mandated to live in isolation outside the camp of the Israelites. And even from a distance, a great distance, it was easy to identify a leper. Not because of his missing toes or his missing nose, but by his torn robe flapping in the wind. By the fact that the turban was missing from his head. And friends, if you were blind and you couldn't see that, you could hear that leper cry as he would cover his mustache and his cry of unclean, unclean, pierce the air. Unfortunately, there are ministers that stand in the pulpits of even this generation and they continually transmit through well-meaning sermons and well-meaning messages that the body of Christ is unclean. You say, Mark, are you telling me there's ministers out there that don't hear from the Holy Spirit? That's exactly what I'm telling you because the Holy Spirit would not tell you to say that. That doesn't mean these ministers don't love God. That doesn't mean that they don't have a calling on their life to preach. But I'm telling you, you're listening to that doctrine that was taught to you that established a stronghold in your heart and that's all you know. You have never seen the revelation of His grace. The Holy Spirit would never call a child of God unclean. Never do it. Not in his vocabulary, period. And so why do they do that? Because they look at a person's external behavior. They look at a person's actions and they call them unclean because they associate this is not the way a child of God acts. Oh, really? How does a child of God act? Really, I, I agree, we should act right, right? But not everybody is in the same place. It is a progressive revelation of this grace. It's a progressive revelation of His goodness and His love. I cannot even begin to tell you how much the body of Christ has had to suffer because people have not heard the message of victorious grace or because the message did not line up with the way they were originally taught. We call that doctrine. And as a result, what happens is people reject so often the only way out of all that emotional pain and anguish just by simply saying that cannot be true. We're forever clean. We are no longer torn. We are no longer infected. We are no longer in isolation. We no longer possess the disease of leprosy because we have been placed inside of the man who died outside of the city gates in other words, he died outside of the camp. It is Jesus Christ. And when he hung on the cross, I want you to know something. He crushed the head of the serpent. He rendered Satan absolutely defeated. And he closed Alcatraz for us once for all. Three days later, our Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave. And he began at that point dispensing this victorious grace. And it was there, it was then, it was that way that the new covenant was instituted for every single believer and grace began to do its work. What did the new covenant do? It made us immune, immune from spiritual leprosy. It's impossible. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. The bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. Look at those words. To make the people holy through his own blood. I heard the story one time of a man, he didn't like certain things written in the Bible and, and he would just tear those pages out. Well, he didn't have very many pages left when he was all done. He'd just take a marker and he'd just black them out. Pastor said one day, why do you have all those black marks in your Bible? Well, I don't agree with that truth right there. The pastor's like, well, it's still truth. Well, I don't agree with it. So what was he doing? He was saying, I'm just going to remove it from my eyes. That's all you've done. You've just removed it from your eyes. That's it. The Bible says that we were made holy by His blood. We are not made holy by what we do. When our children were born, they took my last name. They did nothing to warrant my last name. I gave them my last name. And Jesus gave us His blood. He gave us His name. The Bible even says we are justified by the name of the Lord. We are justified by faith. We're justified by His blood. Beautiful. It was outside the camp when our lives were ebbing from the bite of the scorpion called sin. It was outside the camp when we were in our sinful and leprous condition that Christ died for us outside of the camp. Does that add new meaning to a happy camper? It sure does. I'm a happy camper. Why? Because I died in the body of Christ outside of the gate where he could identify with the leper where he could identify with the outcast the ones that weren't allowed into the city he could identify with them he said you know when I die I'm going to put you inside of me I'm going to make you just as clean as I am how beautiful the best that the law could do was quarantine a leper that was the best it could do but listen to me closely friends Jesus didn't come to quarantine a leper he came to cleanse them. He came to cleanse the leper and to release them from their bondage. The word tells us that Jesus cleansed all ten lepers. That is to say, he took away their leprosy. Okay, I mean, just as simple as that. But only one of the ten lepers returned to fall on his knees and give thanks. When we rolled that narrative over into our new covenant the covenant of victorious grace it is a picture of jesus cleansing us or taking away our sin that's all that is a shadow of a type of that would move into the new covenant and say you had leprosy spiritual leprosy and i have taken it away so let's ask the question why would jesus take away an imminent death sentence for nine unthankful lepers good question isn't it It's kind of hard, I have to be honest with you. It's hard to watch somebody be unthankful. Grace helps you in those areas, really. When you've seen somebody do something for somebody, I mean, and the least they could do would say, thank you. And they don't even say thank you to the person? You go, really? So why would Jesus take away leprosy? Why would he take away this impending death sentence? for nine unthankful lepers. 
It's for the same reason that Jesus takes away our sin, even though many believers don't live lives of gratitude and thankfulness. It's not because the lepers were good. It's because He is good. That's why He would take away sin, because He is good. Remember, He took away our sin while we were yet sinners. Ungodly, the Bible says. Same reason. It is because of His victorious grace that we are cleansed apart from whether we thank Him with our lifestyles or not. That's what true grace looks like. His grace is not based upon our performance and it doesn't cease to operate when we are unthankful. It's very important to know that. Here's the question. Did Jesus reverse the condition of wholeness back to leprosy for the nine unthankful lepers? In other words, did he put leprosy back on them? The answer is no. Will Jesus reverse our condition back to sinner because we're unthankful or because we live an unthankful or even a sinful life at times? The answer again is no. I'm a huge proponent, as I always say, of living a thankful lifestyle and living a, a God-shaped life. But at the same time, I want you to know that I have come to the revelation that my salvation is not based upon my thanksgiving. My salvation is based upon His victorious grace. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. And it came to pass as He went to Jerusalem that He passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as He entered into a certain village, there met Him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus! Master! Have mercy on us. Is that what Moses told him to say? No, Moses said, you're commanded to say unclean, unclean. But at a distance, I don't know how many yards that was away, they saw Jesus and they knew about this Jesus, whether they saw him before or heard the testimonies of the things he did. And they said, Jesus! That means they knew his name. They said, Master! They knew His position. But when they said, Have mercy on us! That was the greater revelation because they knew His heart. His heart was mercy! You see, under the law, you can know His name. Under the law, you can know His position. But under the law, you can never know His heart. You'll never know his heart under the law. But you discover it when grace and mercy begin to work in your heart. If you ever had an officer pull you over for speeding or otherwise, I guarantee you some things you're going to learn. When he steps up to your window, you're going to see a badge on him that's got his name on him. You're going to know his name. Somewhere on his uniform, it's going to say deputy or sheriff or whatever else it may say. You're going to know his position. But you don't know his heart yet. But you're about to find out. You're going to find out what kind of heart he's got for you. And I've had it go both ways. I haven't had a moving violation since 1986. I use cruise control so I don't get into trouble. But when I was honest... 
The last time I got pulled over, the officer said, do you know why I pulled you over? The time before that, I said, no, why did you pull me over? I knew exactly why he pulled me over. When he pulled me over, I said to him these words. I said, I said, well, officer, I said, I must have been moving a little fast. I must have just got carried away. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give you a warning. Why? Because I was real with him. I was honest with him. And the lepers were real, and the lepers were honest, and they said, Jesus, I know your name, Master, I know your position, but most of all, mercy, I know your heart, and there is no way you can walk away from us. You don't have that reputation to walk away from us. So they appealed to him. Under ceremonial law, the leper was commanded to cry, unclean, unclean. But these lepers' cry was not unclean. It was, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Continuing in that story, in winding down this message, verses 14 through 19, and when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face and his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? I, I love that. You see, that's how familiar Jesus is with us. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on our head. You have a group of people stand in front of you. I mean, really, you're going to take time to count them all. I mean, it's not like they were holding up signs. There's 10 of us. And he said, we're not there 10 of you that were cleansed? And then he says, but where are the nine? Have not any of them come back to give glory to God? except the stranger. And he said unto them, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Nine of the lepers did not return to give thanks to Jesus. The cleansing of the lepers, regardless of their thankfulness, was because Jesus is good. Their cleansing was not based upon their own performance and gratitude any more than our sin is removed because of our own thankfulness and good behavior. Friends, that is what grace looks like. Victorious grace has been deposited into every believer. Victorious grace unlocks the prison cell of Alcatraz. Like I said before, it muzzles the cuckoo clock of condemnation. It removes the leeches from our feet and it extracts the poison from the scorpion. My final scriptures, Romans chapter six, verses eight through 11. Look at those words. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. What's important about that is the fact that it's making the point that he cannot die again. That means you cannot die again either, spiritually speaking. Okay. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way exactly the way it was just said there you've died to sin once for all in the same way count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Beautiful scriptures. Now look at, we're in verses 8 through 11. Now let's skip up three verses. My last verse, Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What kind of grace is the Apostle Paul talking about? He's talking about victorious grace. The grace that superbounds and the grace that is ever increasing. Paul is talking about standing firm on the essential truth that man is saved. That means he is declared righteous by faith in Christ through grace alone. Beautiful. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from our five-year anniversary at Triumphant Grace Ministries are these. Grace and peace are ours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. There are no exceptions, there are no limitations, and there are no contributions. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. The unmerited, undeserved, unearned, victorious grace of God continuously transmits the message to our hearts that failure is always an event and never the person. We have been cleansed from the spiritual leprosy once for all. We no longer have to broadcast our hopeless condition of unclean, unclean. We are no longer ragged. We are no longer torn no longer infected, no longer uncovered, and no longer in isolation. We have died in the body of Christ outside the camp where we are made holy through his blood and we are forever clean. How did we become forever clean? Because we said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What was Jesus' response? He persuasively removed the leech called sin from our hearts. We have been quarantined in the body of Christ, the only place whereby we can never again become infected by sin. We are forever clean, friends, and we are forever clean because of one reason and one reason only, and that's because of his victorious grace. Amen. Daddy, I want to thank you. I know it was a long message, but Daddy, we need these truths dripping in our heart. I want to thank you, Father. We're as clean as we're ever going to be. We cannot get any cleaner. I want to thank you, Father. You made a way so that we didn't have to add detergent to it because guess what? We're always running out of detergents. But the blood of Christ never runs out, never runs empty, never runs dry. It's always there to continually wash us and to remind us just exactly the way the prodigal son's father did with hugs and kisses and acceptance and wonderful gifts. And not to look at us and call us a failure, but to say, son, I've taken my arms and wrapped them around your bleeding heart as the tourniquet. And I want you to know, son, I'm going to put the robe on your shoulders. I'm going to put the shoes on your feet. I'm going to put the ring of oneness on your finger. And I'm going to order for the fattened calf to be killed. Why, son? Because I'm going to celebrate with you. Because that's what victorious grace does. In Jesus' name, amen.